I've seen you over and over and over move mightily. Over the course of my life and over the course of my time here at this church, you never cease <laughs> to amaze me in the things that you do. Um, you're always three steps ahead, and you're always so gracious about bringing us along with you. And so, God, as we consider this new chapter at Grace Chapel and all the things that are happening, God, I ask that we would turn to you. I ask that our instinct would be developed to constantly be in prayer. And, and not just prayer for this, this little church in Clifton Park, but prayer that you would move in this city, in this community, in this state, and beyond. Lord, that we would be praying for our missionaries and our missionary organizations and, and our families and, and the people that, that come in contact with us. Lord, that this wouldn't just be about our little church, but it would be about the power and the direction that you are leading us on and with. God, you are mighty, and, and we desperately need you. And God, we are these strange little creatures that can convince ourselves that we don't need you when the opposite is true. So Lord, this morning as we, as we dig into your word, I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would move in these people in mighty ways, that you would be close, that you would be the great comforter that you are, and that you would steer this congregation in the direction that would honor you. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we don't know what's going to happen, and that's scary, but we trust you because you are a good, good God. In your name, amen. Two weeks ago, we had a baptism service, and we called it our celebration slash baptism service, and it was awesome. We had so much fun, and if you're sitting there going, oh, I missed that Sunday, I'm really sorry for you. Because it was so encouraging, it was so exciting, and it was organic, and it was communal, and people shared what they saw God doing, and people from the front shared, and we played music, and people from the congregation shared, and then at the end, we had a hot tub up here, and we baptized five people, and it was absolutely amazing. We had such a great time, and, and just so you know, we're going to do a celebration service every quarter. We're going to do four of those a year, so don't miss the next one. Um, and we will do baptisms with them as, as needed, so we'll see how the Lord moves us in that way. But that's going to be something we do regularly, and we want to embrace community, and we want to embrace what God is doing in our midst, and that's a way we can do that. So that's what we did two weeks ago. And then last week, uh, my, my friend and co-elder, R.A. LaBelle, spoke. Where are you? Are you? There you are. All right. Um, and, and did an awesome job. And I know that because I listened online and, and I heard the message after uh, he delivered it. So thank you, Ari. Can we give him a round of applause for that? Yeah. And I should have told you. I, 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 he didn't know this. He didn't know I was going to say this, but I should have told you. If you were going to go to that level of, of, of well preaching, of good preaching, I'm going to ask you again. So you should have you dialed it back a little bit, and then you wouldn't have been asked. No, no, he did awesome, and I can't wait to get him up here again, uh, a, a talented speaker and a good friend. Um, so that was last week. This week, we get to start a series called What Ails You? And, and, and this series is going to be about the common things in Christians' lives that make them sick spiritually. And I'm going to define what sick means in a little while, but that's what this series is about. And we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about common things that really can drag us down and distract us from the truth. Um, 
but here's the question. What's it like to be sick spiritually? And you might be thinking, well, what's it like to be sick spiritually? That's if, like, um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I sin a lot or, or I'm confused or I'm frustrated or I'm uh, depressed or, or what does it feel like? But to be honest, to be really honest, and I think you guys deserve my honesty, to be honest, being sick spiritually is having sin in your life. And we know from Scripture and from experience that every one of us has sin in our life. So to some degree, we are all sick spiritually. So this message in this series is for you, and it's for me, and it's for anyone who is bold enough to admit, yeah, I have sin in my life, and, and I, I have sin in my DNA, and this is a part of my worldly nature. And, and when I was born again, Jesus died for me, and, and I, can, I can live in him. But what ails you is about some common warnings that we need to go, yeah, that thing, that thing bothers a lot of us. Let's be careful about it. And as we, um, as we get into this week, here's, here's something that I want you to think about. There is no end, no end to our desire for fulfillment as people, as human beings. We chase the feeling of fulfillment everywhere. We look for it everywhere. We want to feel fulfilled, either by what people say or what by people think about us or, or by what we have, the stuff that we collect in this life or, or by how comfortable our life is or, or by how easy our life is. And, and we do this and we, we search for fulfillment with these, these things. I came home late last night after the elders retreat, utterly exhausted, and I come walking into my living room, and there is my little uh, nine-year-old, almost ten, sitting with a dejected look on her face, and I said, Angie, what's wrong? And she said, I've been practicing my flute, and my flute is so hard to practice. It's not easy, and I'm dedicating so much time to it, and I'm frustrated that it's so hard. And I said, well, Angie, hard things are good. Hard things are good for you because as your daddy, I want you to learn how to work hard. I want you to learn how to be disciplined. I want you to learn how to invest in something over and over and over until you have something to show for it. And, and the idea that was hard for her was that if a thing is hard, it must be bad and therefore be removed. Flute is hard. She has a pretty good solution. Let's stop playing flute. <laughs> And as her daddy, I'm saying, wait, no, the reality is that hard things are good for us. And this idea that we're struggling, that, that the things that we struggle with is, are good for us, is a biblical idea. We can see it very clearly in many passages, but, but one that you probably know I'll point out is James 1, 2, through 4. And, and I'm just going to read it to you, and you can look at it later if you'd like. James says to his church, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So it's this idea that when you face something that's difficult, you can work through it because you know if you allow it, that thing will produce something in you, and that thing is a good thing. So as we dig in this morning, let me ask you this question. Why are we never really satisfied? 
I mean really, truly satisfied. We always want more stuff. We always need more comfort. We always need more ease of life. Where do our desires for comfort and entertainment end? Where is the moderation when it comes to our desires? I lived a few years ago in Washington State, and, and we bought a, a little house there. Um, little house, very expensive. Property is very expensive. But we had this little backyard, and in the backyard were a number of trees, and some of them were sick, and, and I had to get rid of them. And you know me, I like, I like some chopping trees. So I did the smart thing, and I didn't go to Ace Hardware and buy a cheap axe. I called my dad. And I said, Dad, you've taught me well. I need to use, I need to have a family axe. I'm not going to go buy a cheap axe. I want you to give me one of your family axes. And you can imagine what he said all the way in Colorado. Well, it would be my honor. (laughs) He mailed me an axe. Mailed it up. No problem. Sent it to me. Got it in a week. And I pulled out the axe and I chopped down a couple trees and I went, wow, this thing is really effective. It's sharp. It's, it's perfect. This is what it's designed to do. But as I began, to, as I finished cutting a couple trees down, I looked around and I noticed, oh, there's four or five other ones that are sicker than I thought. I'm going to have to get rid of them too. So I said, you know what I need? Holding the axe, I said, you know what I need? I need a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah, I need a chainsaw. So I called my dad and I said, dad, I know grandpa gave you a chainsaw that you don't use anymore and I know it works. Send it to me. And he did anything a good dad would do. He said, absolutely. (laughs) So he mailed me a chainsaw. Got the chainsaw. I got it running, got it sharp, and I cut down the trees. And I went, this is amazing. Look at this thing I got. And then I moved to New York. And I bought a little bit more property. And I have more trees. And I'm cutting with this chainsaw, and it's working so well. It's working hard. But I said, you know what I need? (laughs) I need a bigger chainsaw. And I went out and I bought the biggest chainsaw I could find. This chainsaw has enough horsepower that my motorcycle in middle school has, okay? This thing is huge. It, it, it makes your arms sore. And I'm cutting trees with it and I'm going, this is amazing. And I look up and I go, I'm trying to clear four acres and I've cleared an acre. And my buddy Scott and I have been working hard. And you know what I need? I need a, I need a forest mulcher. <laughs> this is a machine that literally cuts down trees for you. So I found a guy who had a forest mulcher. (laughs) And I said, come on out. I need cleared. I need this area cleared. And he cleared it. The point of this is that it never ends. When they invent a new chainsaw that's bigger than mine, I'm going to want to buy it. And I don't have the ability, and I joke and I laugh and it's silly, but I don't have the ability to say, you know, this is enough. My axe is enough. I'm good with that. It just keeps on coming. And I go on Facebook and ads, somehow they know and they're throwing ads at me about chainsaws. I'm like, how do you know? Are you listening to me? Yeah, they probably are. Where do our desires for, con- for entertainment end? When we come home with a 50-inch TV and we put it on our, on our mantle, we, we sit back. I mean, it takes about two minutes. And somehow there's an ad that pops up for a 70-inch TV. And wow, wouldn't that look better, right? It just keeps coming at us. There's not a big enough TV and there's not a big enough chainsaw on the planet to keep me satisfied, to keep me fulfilled. Listen to what a Christian blogger and author named Gloria Fuhrman says about consumerism, because that's what this is, consumerism. She says, like all of the other idols, consumerism is just an empty, useless facade Consumerism is starving, and because we emulate the characteristics 
that we worship, its worshipers are unsatisfied and never fulfilled. The idolatrous pursuit of pleasure through stuff works against the way God designed us to. So, of course, of course, it leaves us miserable. Absolutely miserable. Consumerism is an issue in our culture. And the way consumerism works is it never, it's never in my house. It's never in me. It's always everybody else that's struggling with consumerism. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you who struggles with it. Consumerism is an issue in our culture, and it's no different for us right here in Clifton Park at Grace Chapel. We all struggle with this. It's something that ails us. So let's see what Jesus, how Jesus dealt with it in his ministry. Let's read the passage um, this morning, and and I'm going to read to you uh, John chapter 2, and I'm going to put the word, Ted's going to put the words on the screen here in a minute, and, and you can dig in and read on your own if you'd like to. So chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. John 2, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he did what anybody would do. No. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned the tables. Man's making a scene. To those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign could you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he he was speaking of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was a scene causer. (laughs) He was a troublemaker. He went against the authorities and the Christian or the, the religion of the day. He was a troublemaker. Well, what in the world made him so upset? What would drive him to literally forming a whip and driving the livestock out of this area? You know, some people say it's about commerce, but I don't think Jesus was upset about commerce. Jesus never spoke about buying or selling trade and, and how that was an evil thing. Jesus, if Jesus had a problem with commerce of the day, he would have constantly pointed it out, especially in Jerusalem and in other large cities, but he didn't. It wasn't about commerce. And it definitely wasn't about animals, because if you know anything about the Old Testament law and what they did in the temples, they sacrificed animals as a way to atone for their sins. This was part of their religious structure. If you didn't see animals in the temple, there would be a problem. (laughs) Animals were almost the the most common thing to see in in the temple. So it wasn't about animals. And it wasn't just about making things easier either, because this had been going on. It wasn't about making the travelers, the weary travelers easier. Can you just imagine for a minute, let's say you're going to the festival 
a good Jewish family. You're going to go to this festival. It's about 100 miles, 150 miles away. No, you know, modern transportation, so you're walking. And, and, and you're really feeling like God is asking you to give a big sacrifice this year, so, so you want the bull of your herd. You're going to take the bull with you. 150 miles. Do you know how much it, an animal like that eats? Do you know how much it drinks? Do you know how expensive it would be to bring any type of animal with you over a journey? It would be almost impossible. You're paying like twice what the animal's actually worth just to transport it. Now, it was very common for travelers to come into Jerusalem, purchase the, the sacrifices that they needed, and to exchange money for the temple tax because you had to exchange the currency. There's a lot of different currencies. It was common. And it wasn't just something in Jesus' day. It had been happening for centuries. It was something else. In fact, it was so not about the, the, the animals and, and the, the commerce happening in the thing. This happened for hundreds of years across the Kidron Valley. They actually set up uh, an area where they had booths and animals and everything. It was outside and it was across the Kidron Valley. And for hundreds of years, this is what you did. You go over there, you get what you need, you come across the river, you come into the temple and you sacrifice it. That's what you do. But something had changed in Jesus' day and they took that area and they brought it into the court of the Gentiles. So now they're in this area of the temple that's the court of the Gentiles. And that's where this was going on. And, and this is where he's driving these animals out of, the court of the Gentiles. But it was about something else that made him so upset. It was something that most people of the day had forgotten. And, and maybe many of us at times forget. It was about the enterprise of worship. The enterprise of worship. The people of the day had prioritized their comfort over, and, and, and the way, the priority of the way they worshipped over worship itself. It had become more important that it was easy for them to do the thing that they were supposed to do than it was to even worship. The very ground they were standing on was dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. And since this took place in the court of the Gentiles, like I mentioned, you could even argue that they had kicked the newcomers out so they could have a little bit of an easier worship experience. You could even argue that, that they, they prioritize their preferences over worship. That's what bothered him. And it gets better. It gets cooler than even that. Check this out. Je the disciples said, hey, we remembered, we read somewhere that somebody said the zeal for their house, for, for the Lord's house, will consume him. Who was that? Who said that? Oh, David said that. David said that. They're actually quoting Psalm 69 in the way that they're referencing how they remembered this. Zeal for your house will consume me. The interesting thing about those words is that's not prophecy. We're going to read it in a minute. Psalm 69 is not a messianic psalm. If David is not referring to the Messiah coming, that he would have zeal for the house. He's actually talking about himself. David is talking about himself. And the disciples know that and are seeing the same zeal in the great, 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 great grandson of King David. You're, you're counting, aren't you? I know you are. 
the greater son of David, had the same zeal. Let's read it. Not going to put the words up because I didn't put them down. Sorry, Ted. We're going to read it. Psalm 69, you can turn to it in your Bibles or you can or you can look at it later if you want, if you don't want to turn to it. I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 because it's a really long psalm. This is what David writes. Okay, so David is saying this about himself. Verse 6, Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. I endure scorn for your sake. And shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. And here's why. Verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. And when I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am a song to drunkards. David was so passionate for the Lord's house, (laughs) so much zeal that his own family, he says, doesn't recognize him. He has gone crazy with his passion for the Lord, and it hasn't been good at home because of it. He's gone too far, they probably said. their consumerism in Jesus' day had taken over their reason for worship. And when Jesus had a problem with it and made a scene and frankly made a fool of himself in front of the teachers of the law and everybody that was in the temple, the disciples remember there was somebody else that was this crazy. And his name's David, King David in fact. That's where Jesus gets his passion and his zeal. Why was David so obsessed with the temple? What would drive Jesus to drive these animals out of the temple? It was because the temple is a representation of Jesus's, or, or God's presence. David was passionate about God's presence. So then, when you have the Pharisees or, or the, 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 the Jews said, hey, what gives you the right to do this? Jesus says, I am the way that you relate to the Father. And when you, break, when you tear this down, I'll raise it again in three days. Of course, they didn't understand. They thought he was talking about the physical temple and it confused everybody. But Jesus represents the way we dwell with the Father. And that's what Jesus was so passionate about. This story is a challenge to apply. It's a a challenge to apply. And I've read it hundreds of times and I'm going, how in the world does this relate to everyday life in our world? And I read it and I think, this is a strange story where Jesus apparently does something out of the ordinary for a very common reason and it's all very confusing. But it applies to us. Oh man, does it apply to us. See, the the sad truth is that we're drowning in consumerism. It's bad, you guys. Consumerism Our consumerism has had babies who have had consumerism babies, and those are affecting us. That's how bad it's gotten. We are knee-deep in consumerism. 
And we as a society struggle so much with consumerism, it's, it's blinded us. It has. I read an article a few years back, one of Target's marketing directors, so the superstore Target, one of their marketing directors did an interview on covert marketing strategies. So this is a way Target, the big store, covertly markets to you so that you'll buy products, okay? So this is what he says about this. He said that the team at Target had so much data on its consumers, it wasn't a matter of knowing what the consumers wanted. They knew that, hands down. It wasn't about what, uh, finding out what they wanted. It was a harder challenge, he said, was not letting the consumers know that Target knew. So we had to be sneaky. We had to serve them ads in ways that they didn't know. And so a few weeks later, they would buy the thing that we suggested, so, so, th so they think that they're making the choice. He said we had to let the consumer think they are making an independent choice, when in reality, we've been sending them ads for weeks on the thing that they're going to buy. <laughs> That's the state of our consumerism. We are predictable. <laughs> and I read that and I went, I'm not predictable. <laughs> but you know what I need? A big chainsaw. <laughs> I'm as, as predictable as anyone. So yeah, we're knee deep in consumerism. But here's what we need to remember today. And here's the hope that we so desperately need and the, and the thing that will stop ailing us we cannot let our desires overshadow the value of knowing the person of Jesus Christ. And oh, it's a slippery slope. You see, David had zeal for his father's house because it was where the father dwelt. Jesus is talking about rebuilding the temple in three days because he represents how we relate and dwell with the father. We cannot let our desires overshadow the value of knowing the person of Jesus. And it's a slippery slope, y'all. It's so slippery. Not one of us can draw a line in the sand to determine how much consumerism is enough. We can't do it. And the big companies know it. <laughs> There's no end to our desire to consume. We have to make it easier and more comfortable constantly. And we can convince ourselves that our desires are good, but others' desires aren't. So all those crazy people out there are so wild with consumerism, but I'm, I'm good, right? We must keep sight of our priorities. We need to take a lesson from what Jesus is trying to teach the Jews of the day. You've, you've flipped your priorities. Jesus is saying, I don't care if you, if you come all this way and buy a, a donkey, come here and sacrifice it, but, but don't flip it. It's not more important than what you're trying to do. So the hope in all of this, the hope in all of this, of this is that we get our fulfillment in knowing the risen Messiah. That's where our fulfillment comes from. The perspective to adopt in all of this is, I get my hope from Jesus. And just like my little sweet girl has to discipline herself playing the flute, we have to discipline ourselves from day after day and hour after hour going, not getting, my, not getting my fulfillment there, I get my fulfillment from Jesus. And it's over and over and over. We have to come back to the point and remember who it is that we're doing this for. Why are you here in church this morning? 
Maybe your spouse drug you out of bed. I don't know. But it's because of Jesus. That's what gives us the fulfillment. That's what fulfills us. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. So I ask you this morning, where is your zeal? Where is your zeal for Jesus? And if you have a hard time answering that question, then I would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to stir in you a new song, to stir in you this zeal for Jesus. And be careful what you ask for, because he will. (laughs) Don't let your comfort overshadow the value of knowing the person of Jesus. And if we don't do this, if we don't do this, if we don't prioritize the gospel, and we prioritize our preferences and our desires, what are we doing? What are we doing this for? We could make a way, an easier club to be a part of, right? No, this is about Jesus. If we don't do this, we will chase our consumeristic fulfillment our whole life. No matter how successful we are, no how much money we make or have, we will never be fulfilled. We'll even convince ourselves that turning a place of worship into a place of preference is a good idea. And we will be left feeling empty and alone. But if we take charge and we take this seriously, we can make a stand and refuse to let our comforts and our desires overshadow this fulfillment that we have. We will find if we do that, that the fulfillment that Jesus offers is the only thing that satisfies. The only thing that satisfies. So we can't let our desires overshadow the value of knowing the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we're helpless. We're helpless little creatures who can't say no to the bigger TV. (laughs) Or in my case, the bigger chainsaw. We so desperately need you to guide us. And it's so difficult to to not be distracted by what we think we need, especially when, when our whole society tells us we need more. God, we chase fulfillment in so many wrong places. When the fulfillment that we actually seek is staring us in the face. And his name is Jesus. And Lord, my heart breaks over people that are so lost in their own desires that they can't see that the only thing they long for is waiting for them. God, I ask that you would stir in us a new passion, a new zeal for your risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. God, I ask that we would would fall on our knees and we would be constantly in prayer because we know this world doesn't fulfill us. There's always one more thing that we need and want. But your son, Jesus, fulfills us and we thank you for that. And I ask that, that by fulfilling us, 
that we would be a beacon of light for those around us that are so lost in consumerism that they don't know what ends up. That your love would come into us and impact our immediate neighbors, impact our greater community, impact the city, and that your name would be lifted up because you fulfill us. We love you, Jesus. Stir in us a new song. In your name, amen.